This is episode 115 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm talking with cowgirl Corrine Joy Brown. Corrine is a Denver native who loves history, especially the American West, the story of the Jewish people, and the cultures of the greater Southwest. A partner in a high-end home furnishings and design firm, she's also a published author and freelance journalist with frequent bylines in the local and national publications. Corrine published her first novel 22 years ago and has never looked back. Horses show up in almost all of her books. Saddle up for a conversation about living the Western lifestyle, one woman's incredible adventures writing about the West, disrupting distraction, and looking for synergies in our creative lives. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horsebook authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horsebook. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm very excited to have Corrine Joy Brown on the show. She is a woman after my own heart. She's a fellow cowgirl. She loves the West, and we are going to have a lot of fun having a conversation today. Hi, Corrine. Welcome to the show. Hi, Carly. Glad to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. Now, as people who listen to the show, or if you're new, welcome. How I always love to start these conversations off, because what are the best topics on earth, right? Horses and books about them. <laughs> so my first question is always, how have horses inspired your life, Corrine? Well, considering I got my first horse when I was seven years old, I really can't imagine a life without horses. <laughs> they have helped me forge a sense of independence, of confidence, and of personal strength. Because when Denver was a cow town and I was just a kid, I used to ride my horse home to our suburban neighborhood up streets that today are paved. You'd never believe that we, we were so rural at that time. Every wonderful memory I have of growing up is attached to horses. So what can I say? They're part of who I am. Yes, it certainly gets into our DNA or we were born with it in our DNA. Right. Who knows? But how amazing. You were in Denver when it was dirt roads and horses as transportation. That's that right. Is, that is amazing. So you are you are born <laughs> out of the West. It so jingles my spurs that you love the Western <laughs> lifestyle. That is the coolest thing. So tell us, I mean, obviously you grew up in the West, but tell us about your love of the Western lifestyle and how it inspires you. So that has everything to do with the fact that for all of us women of a certain age who grew up in the 50s and the 60s, with the invention of the television came the golden age of Hollywood and television westerns. Mm -hmm. And who doesn't remember sitting home on a Saturday morning and watching Sky King and my friend Flicka and every other western that, that told the kind of stories that were really dear to our hearts as children and family fair. In fact, uh, I published a book in 2012 called Come and Get It, which is a 75-year history of Western dinnerware. 
And oh, this wow. was a genre of popular culture that was started in the 50s, actually in the late 40s, to sort of bring the West onto the dinner table. And in the opening chapter, I said, when the Western gave way to science fiction and detective shows like, you know, Star Trek and, and Dragnet and every, I said, it was like a long lost relative who disappeared, but we knew was gonna come walking in the door one day <laughs> and bring us back home. And I think for all of us boomers, if you will, everything Western is familiar and inviting, and I hate to use the word kitsch, but in a wonderful way, it's it's part of who we were. It was, it was a phase we all went through. Who didn't have a Roy Rogers bedspread? You know, <laughs> I had a brother who did. And the thing is, my parents escaped Europe in the middle of World War II, and I was the first generation to be born in America. And I so honor the fact that I have roots here that my childhood's very different than theirs, and that I absorbed everything I could about animals and landscape and cowboys and rodeos and the National Western. I mean, we even had a full-blood Native American Apache Indian who lived with us for five years, ended up naming her daughter after me. And when I got engaged, I took my husband down to the reservation in New Mexico because I couldn't imagine him knowing me without knowing my Indian mother. Wow. So that's how deep it is. That is very, very deep. And oh, you're speaking <laughs> to my heart here. So I had to, I had to throw this question in because I mean, you love the West. I imagine you own many pairs of cowgirl boots. I do, because actually that's a very big subject. <laughs> for 15, 18 years, I wrote for a magazine called Western and English Today. It's still being published out of Dallas, and it is a trade magazine that drives the Western wear industry. For the first 10 years, I was the fashion editor, Ooh. and I wrote about manufacturers, designers, producers, you name it, uh, the whole range of product from the feet up, from boots to hats. <laughs> and I had the pleasure of meeting a lot of designers and manufacturers personally, of course, and over time, I started buying cowboy boots, and I discovered that they wanted me to wear their boots. <laughs> so don't laugh. I had 19 pairs of cowboy boots at one time. <laughs> so I was so excited about the idea of creating my own cowboy boots that I did. I came up with some sketches and drawings. I submitted them to Trey's Outlaws. A year later, this book came out by <laughs> Jennifer June. It's called Cowboy Boots, The Art of the Soul. To my amazement, Carly, <gasps> those are the boots I designed. So there are three different kinds of leather. They're inlaid and engraved, and they have roses on the toes and the heels and up the center. They were high-heeled, really feminine ladies' cowboy boots. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's amazing. I'd love it to see, see some pictures of you all dressed up in your... Your cowgirl. Oh, I have some of those. Unfortunately, two years ago, my shoe size changed. I went from a nine to a nine and a half. Oh. And even these custom-made boots don't fit anymore. Oh, so I'm no. now down to two pairs. <laughs> we, gotta, we, have to get that, we have to get that number back right. up there. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's so exciting. It's and story. it's a great story, but at least those beautiful boots, they can at least maybe find a spot on your shelf. You have a beautiful office behind I'm never you. going to get rid of them. I hope they end up in the Cowgirl Museum down in Fort Worth. 
That would be incredible. Wouldn't that be? I mean, they they sort of started a whole genre for that producer who has their factory down in El Paso. And we didn't make an agreement ahead of time. I didn't think I had to, Mm -hmm. but he started producing them for the general public. And when I said, you can't do that, let's have my name on them. And he said, too late. We should have made those arrangements. He's oh. entitled, I suppose, but that's how it goes. So oh that's all about intellectual property, right? Yeah, Being an author, but who knows when you design a cowgirl boot, you have to uh, worry right. about your design uh, yeah. getting, I don't know, taken. <laughs> so. Whatever. I hope somebody else is enjoying them because it, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful design. And they- it, it is beautiful. And, and you. you you have the original pair, right? So you can always yeah. be proud of that. And I bet you the call, the Cowgirl Museum would definitely take those on for their displays. Well, they might. You know, the Denver Post did a feature story about me and this dinnerware book because I had at that time 600 pieces of Western dinnerwares spanning 75 years. They thought it was a great story. So they came to the house and photographed me sitting on my living room couch in my boots and a leather skirt, you know, decked. It was a, a show. I, I really saved those boots just for special occasions. And mm-hmm. now they're, you know, they're a shelf decoration. So. Oh, that is so amazing. I love that story. Thank you for sharing with that with us. And and I wanted to share too, you have an incredibly impressive resume. You've already mentioned that you, you've done a lot of writing for publications in the Western space. Uh, you're a partner in a high-end home furnishings and design firm. Uh, you freelance for a variety of print publications, which I just mentioned, including Colorado Expression Magazine, Cowboys and Indians, Western Art and Architecture, Colorado Life, and many more. A you, new one is a Colorado Horse Source. I just started writing for them. Ooh, new I like that one. Here. We yeah. need the more horse magazines in the world, right. the better, I think, for sure. I do. And then you're formerly a staff writer for Working Ranch Magazine, True West, and mm-hmm. Persimmon Hill. Persimmon Hill, and the publication of the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma. You've right. done you've done a lot, and you grew up in the West, embedded in the culture. Talk to us about how why you chose this career path, and and how it has inspired the writing of your book. I'd like to say that it found me. Carly. That's better. Uh, That's better than anything. I was a guitar player in the 60s, a folk singer. When I went off to college, I teamed up with a partner and we were a duo for about six years. You know, that was the era. And I became a songwriter. I was deeply inspired by all the folkies, you know, all the usual suspects, hoping that one day Joan and Judy would retire. They never Mm -hmm. did. But I was a performance artist and I took my music very seriously. And I discovered like country music, that Western music and folk music are stories. We're all storytellers. And somehow reading my first book by Barbara King Solver, mm-hmm. Bean Trees. I love her. Yes, I, love, I do too. I love that book. Metaphors. And I was on a plane that was trying to land at Denver's airport. And we were in a holding pattern because of these high winds. We ended up flying all the way down to Colorado Springs and back. And in that additional 30 minutes, I finished that book. I didn't want it to end. I pulled out a yellow tablet from my travel bag and a pen. And I decided to write another chapter. I wanted those characters to keep living. The next week, I enrolled in 
a weekend bi-monthly writing class. And I was encouraged by my mentor to enter a couple competitions. And I did. And I started placing right off the bat. (laughs) And he said to me, once you find your vehicle, no one will be able to stop you. And that vehicle turned into my first novel, McGregor's Lantern, which I wrote, which came out in 2001. And it's the story of the Scottish presence in the American West following the Civil War. And it's a love story and a murder mystery. And it was inspired by a Scottish castle that is in the south part of the city on the way to Douglas County. If anybody knows Colorado. And it's a magnificent replica of the castle in Edinburgh on 6,000 acres. And it was deeply inspiring that such a place existed. And and it helped me to see the bigger picture. I began to look at all the Scottish presence. I won't go into its whole history, but most people are unaware of the fact that there were over 300 ranches in Colorado and Wyoming in the late 1800s under Scottish or English title. It wasn't just the English came to Texas and opened the XIT ranch, the biggest ranch in history. Colorado had an enormous presence. And that was the research that I, and then I went to Scotland for two weeks and taped people so I could get the brogue, the accent. And the publishers loved it so much, they said, run with it, give us a sequel. Well, I just sold that sequel six months ago. I mean, it only took me 20 years (laughs) because I was too busy writing other books and I just didn't know where those characters could go. Mm -hmm. And the amazing thing is the acquisition editor who took that book, said, what else have you got? I said, I'm always working on a project. I said, I'm doing middle grade work about wild horses. I got a thriller about a heart transplant. He goes, no, just give us what you already did. He said, we want more of that. Just wind up this trilogy and let's have it in six weeks. And I said, oh my gosh. (laughs) I, I actually pulled it off in eight weeks and I'm really excited. I'm doing the editing on that right now. I know that's another one of your questions, so I'm jumping the gun. <laughs> but, but the truth is, this is a very sustainable story with remarkable characters. This was the, the West on the edge of the 20th century, literally, mm-hmm. because electricity was invented. The automobile was invented. We had this shift. The last cattle drive was 1895. And my characters were in the midst of it all. Women's suffrage. Wyoming had just given women the right to vote, privatized banking, the Federal Reserve. The railroads were finally sold to uh, American holders. And it was the more the deeper I got, the more I said, this is a time, 1890. People don't even realize what was going on. And so that's the time period for these three books. <laughs> and they have changed my life, I must say. Yeah. Wow, that is an incredible, <laughs> incredible story. I, I love that it started with Barbara Kingsolver, you reading that book yeah. and being inspired by her writing. I imagine that just growing up in the West is one thing you had a perspective, but the research that must have gone into creating this trilogy must have been it was so interesting, right? But it right. took you probably it probably took you quite a bit to like dive deep enough to bring all that to the surface, right? Water laws, uh, women's rights mm. before uh, emancipation. I went into the Colorado Law, Law Library. 
many trips up to Wyoming. In fact, my book club, when McGregor's Lantern came out, we decided to all go to Cheyenne. It's 100 miles from Denver, straight north. Took over two B&Bs, oh, went out to the Swan Ranch, which was the model for Rock Rimmon, the ranch I created. It was at one time the largest ranch in Wyoming mm -hmm. and several cow camps covering a thousand square miles, literally. And the exciting thing about doing our uh, celebration of the book there was that at the end, we all felt like we needed to make a visit to the Cheyenne Cemetery mm -hmm. and go see the graves of these characters who never lived, but in our minds, you know, it was that real. And, and that's how deep an author can get into a story. You bring something to life and you can't let go. Oh, that is love. That is lovely. I have goosebumps. I mean, what a great story. And I love that it just came to you and, and you stayed inside of that, that creative space of storytelling. And, and well, you fortunately, um, this first book was optioned for film for six years and the company in LA that fell in love with it, they tried to do a deal with the BBC to do a miniseries and they're still sort of in the wings. You know, these three books together would make several seasons worth of episodes and maybe that's what was missing was the rest of the story so yeah. i'm pretty excited to see what traction we'll have once i repackage them or my and and the beautiful thing is my same publisher five star cengage like they waited well and, and you know along the way they dropped the women's fiction section then they reestablished it then um, this fell under what was called frontier fiction. You know, the headlines kept changing. But the good news is they loved the first book and they were delighted with the sequel. So I feel very blessed. Wow. And a film option. I think that's every author's little oh, dream in the background. Very that, exciting. It was. Yes. We'll see if we can make it happen again. Well, fingers crossed for sure. That's very exciting. Now, you've mentioned you've been writing for a long time. How many books are in your backlist? It sounds like you're a very prolific writer. So what, what's going on so with your backlist? I had to sit down and make a list last night. Thank you, Carly, because <laughs> I can't fit them all on my business card anymore. I have 10. Tell us the name of the trilogy that you're currently working on, that you had the first and now you've got well, the, the sequel. The first book was called McGregor's Lantern. Okay. The one that's underway right now is called McGregor's Return. And the third book is McGregor's Revenge. <laughs> Is it the McGregor trilogy series? series. Yes. Okay, yes. great. I just wanted to make sure we got that in there so people okay, could thank check you. that out. Right. I'm so curious, like, how do you approach writing your stories? I mean, do you outline? Do you think of a message you want to tell? Like, where do your characters come from? Or is it Gosh. more like a poof thing? Yeah, every single book has had a different nexus or beginning. And I have to say, for example, my first children's book, uh, Wishful Watusi, I used to board my horse out south of the city. And for a brief time, this incredible animal showed up, this Appaloosa Percheron. I don't know <laughs> if you can see that. Well, here's the artist drawing. There we oh, go. Awesome. I love that. So we had a giant draft horse with spots the size of, you know, cantaloupes. And he was the most adorable animal. <laughs> and by the time I got home, I had a short story in my mind. And I petitioned the publisher of this series, which is uh, Peg Sundberg. I think there are seven or eight books. I'm her only author that's not, 
you know, she, she did all the books herself, but she loved what I brought her. So that book was prompted by a, a horse. Then I created a writer's conference that ran for four years in Gunnison, Colorado on the Western Slope in a real cattleman's town. And I did it as a way to uh, provide not only a service, but draw new members into Western Writers of America. Mm. And we advertised it all over the country. And every summer for four years, we had at least 55 attendees and we offered them everything from a rodeo afternoon to an overnight pack trip into the Elk Tooth Wilderness. And one of those attendees was a full-time professional rodeo cowboy, sixth generation, who rented a horse just to go on our pack trip so he could propose an idea to me, which was to write a story together. And I said, gosh, I don't write books with people. I don't know how that works. He said, well, let me just give you the storyline. And, you know, it sounded like a summary of a country western music song <laughs> and I said I love it I said I'd love to buy it from you and he said no way we're going to do this one together and that became this book Sanctuary Ranch which was co-written by Junior Michael Ray and myself he was also a war vet and everything in this is veritable comes out of his world and mine you know it was a, a 25 year old Wyoming cowboy war vet, Colorado roots, and a 45-year-old woman at the time. <clears throat> but we pulled this book off and wrote it in about six weeks. You know, isn't it amazing the collaboration and the people you meet along <clears throat> the way when you're writing stories? When they come to you, they just, they do. And I'm, I've been so lucky. This book, my entry into middle grade, a wonderful artist, Jenny McDonald, was introduced to me by a friend. And I looked at her portfolio of magnificent drawings and said, I can't get over this. She said, well, <clears throat> all these drawings were inspired by my wild Mustang. And I would like you to help me turn them into a story. So this miracle, this absolutely beautiful middle grade book filled with stunning illustrations by Jenny McDonald, who is a professional illustrator uh, in real life who created catalogs for machine companies, but who adopted two wild Mustangs and devoted her free time to drawing these beautiful, the kind of drawings I remember reading horse books by Margaret Henrys, fabulous. And her drawings, King of the Wind, Misty of Chincoteague, whoever that artist was, they were realistic. They weren't anime, airbrush. I hate to say it, but the cartoon world has affected um, children's illustration in a very gimmicky way. Mm. And I'm really old school. So when I met Ginny, I said, let's do this. And very sadly, Ginny passed away this past spring. We I'm were sorry. a third of the way through the next book. And I happen to have a degree in fine art and art education. I'm an artist too. <laughs> And I said, you can do it all. I tell I you. can do it all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do brain surgery. I just asked for her colored pencil set when mm. she was gone and they were distributing her estate. And I said, you know, I, I hope to carry this on. I can do this. Maybe not as well as she, but at least I'll raise the bar. I'll give it my best shot. And um, may Jenny's energy and her talent live on. In fact, we have a website for this book called Mustang Curly, 
and people can see examples of the work there. So beautiful. Oh, what a lovely tribute to her by going Thank on to you. finish the book and continue yeah. in, in, in her way of drawing, which is amazing. And the artist or the illustrator that, that did uh, Marguerite Henry's early books uh, at the beginning was Wesley Dennis. So oh, okay. just, just I remember so now. Yeah. Thank you. You're right. Yes. Well, and I only know that because I've been revisiting them. I recently revisited two books that I read in my childhood. And I have to tell you something. Innocence is bliss, because mm -hmm. I couldn't get through either one of them. <laughs> one was Black Beauty, and mm -hmm. the other was Smoking the Cow Horse by Will James. Both those stories are so gritty and so filled with pain and abuse that for those of us that know and love horses and wouldn't lay a hand on an animal, I just found them overwhelmingly realistic and wondered how as a child did I read Black Beauty 10 times and Smokey at least five times? You know, I was weaned on those stories. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you know that the writing of Black Beauty by Anna Sewell in 1854, immediately the direct result was the formation of the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals mm -hmm. and Children. Mm -hmm. who were neither protected, you know, not, I mean, they weren't protected either. <laughs> yeah. And that's, so. that's the power of creativity and the power of being an author and the power of right. telling a story. And I must say, if I may, I've entered the world of nonfiction books for kids because I have a background in art. This book, Awesome Art Activities for Horse-Loving Kids, is six lessons with inspiration by real artists from history, using real art materials. Here's a Franz Marc. I mean, this is a trip through time and introducing children to the very best. There's some of my own work in here. There's an image from a painting I've done. And we begin with the horses of the caves of Lascaux, France. So, Man has been drawing horses since prehistory, and I want children to know that. This book is fully illustrated by the children who did the, the lessons. I work with a local pony club. And at the back of the book are pictures of horses we love. You know, the pony next door, not fancy show horses, but just that horse you grew up with and knew and loved. And so this is a four-volume series. I'm doing volume two right now. It's just been a thrill, and it's taking me back to my roots as an artist and my degree in fine art and art ed. I'm putting it all together. <laughs> I love that. I mean, what an amazing life and how many amazing people you've gotten to meet, and you've done a little bit of everything. You, I mean, you, we talked a little bit before the podcast started. I mean, you write for publications, you write books, you write for people, or you write with people as an editor. Right. You're an artist. I, I just, I, I just love this story. It's so fascinating. Now you've mentioned a couple of times your publisher. I wanted to mm -hmm. talk to you a little bit about how your journey through publishing has gone? I mean, do you have a literary agent? And it, and it sounds like you have multiple publishers. Can you talk to us a little bit about yeah. the route so you've I was, gone? Uh, very lucky at the beginning. I was agented by the Jane Distel Literary Agency of New York City. They represented people like Paul Broca and Judge Judy and Julia Child, and 
in the end, they ended up selling my book, McGregor's Lantern, to a publisher I had already approached much earlier, who said, you don't need an agent. We'll take care of you. <laughs> in the end, that's how it worked out. I discovered that my agents weren't, this agency was not interested in anything else I had to offer following this book. So our relationship subsided. Then I ran into the children's publisher that took the one book, uh, the Watusi book, and I ended up paying for the production of that, which was an interesting relationship. I could have done it all on my own, but I was learning the ropes. McGregor's Lantern was distributed by, at that time, five-star books through the American library system. Their audience was not retail bookstores. However, if I were to appear in a bookstore, they would give that bookstore 40 off, like any trade deal, and encouraged me to do so. So I traveled to Scottish festivals in Utah, in Wyoming, and in and Colorado, which there are several. And I discovered that uh, the investment you put in getting to a place and putting yourself up and <clears throat> renting a never made back the price, you know, so that was not the way to go. I mean, thank God for social media. We actually have new and better ways of reaching a wider public. At any rate, I finally uh, found the business of self-publishing mm -hmm. and struck gold with this book, Hidden Star, that no publisher wanted. And I ended up going to a vanity press in Canada called Friesen Press, where I bought a package deal that included editing and promotion. And in the end, it turned out that I was much more savvy than the entire team I was working with. Oh, no. And including designing the cover art. I mean, they brought me three ideas. One was a saguaro cactus. One was a tumbleweed. I said to all of them, you're in the wrong part of the West. This is New Mexico, northern New Mexico, the Sangre de Cristos. The color and the light in that part of the West is like nowhere else. I happened to find this beautiful painting by a Colorado artist. This book won the New Mexico Book Award for historical fiction. Wow. It won the Latino Literacy Award for inspirational fiction. Actually, I came in second, but at any rate, <laughs> that was a, a very big step for me to get mm -hmm. this book in front of I'm not a Latino. It even won the James Olmos book to film entry. They had 18 winners out of 300 submissions. I was the only non-Latino. But this book is about the cultures of New Mexico. And in the meantime, it also, the Jewish Book Council accepted me as an author on tour. And I was traveled, all expenses paid, to six cities across America to promote this story. So. Tell me where you have a better deal, self-publishing or getting on your knees in front of a traditional publisher and saying, distribute my book. I went back to Cengage Five Star because I discovered that the American library system as a first distribution is a great place to be because librarians recommend books to readers and book clubs. And in the 20 years that have passed, I'm not a newcomer anymore. I have a resume that counts. And when this book um, or any of my books uh, arrive with a short history of who the author is, I, I'm thrilled for Five Star to, to you know, 
present my book to all the libraries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get an advance. So you get money up front and then you get royalties. And now I have to give all your listeners a clue. One of the most wonderful things, wonderful things I've done is I did a virtual book tour. Have you heard about these? Mm-hmm. Yes. I used a company called iRead. And we made a contract for 20 bloggers to read the book, Finding Home. And she had so much interest that she threw in six more bloggers. And two-thirds of them wanted the book in hand. And the rest were willing to read it as an e-book. But they lived in places like Montreal and Miami and San Diego and, and Oregon. And so coast to coast, I had readers who read this book and loved it. And then the owner of iReads posted all those comments, the good ones, they were all good, (laughs) on Amazon. So if you pull up Finding Home, Mm -hmm. you will hear what lots of people who are stay-at-home mothers, retired teachers, I just love this idea. It was the best validation for this new entry into a new genre for me, and I will use them again. I, you know what I what I'm hearing is you've you've done it all. You've tried a little bit of everything in your career. Yeah. But yeah. I love that you told the story about the one that you chose to publish yourself that no one wanted that right. went went on to have incredible success. Incredible success. I mean, I literally offered it for two years. Oh, and I had a new agent at that time. Mm-hmm. She's a lovely person here in Colorado. She also liked the McGregor book and said at the end of our friendly departure after two years that um she it just wasn't the time for westerns well tell that to the producers of yellowstone right right i mean come on the western will never die and in fact the mcgregor's series is really not a true western it's not gun smoke and horses it's tea time on the plains Mm -hmm. we're talking the english and scottish presence in the heart of Indian country. You know, it was just an amazing time of transformation. I feel very blessed that I've had this broad experience, but I don't think I need an agent. I will never go looking for one again. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw that by going to self-publishing and getting Hidden Star out in front of the right audience, it took off. It has gone through uh, numbers of reprints and it's in hardback and trade paperback and an audiobook to die for. I, I, I uh, used a service and I listened to a half a dozen readers and I finally, finally found a native uh, Spanish speaker who was an actress in Chicago, a young mother <laughs> who fell in love with this story and she was able to do the voices of the young children and the grandfather. That's a big jump. But she was fabulous. So if anybody's interested, go to uh, Amazon's audiobooks and have a listen to Hidden Star. It's a treat. That is fantastic. Now, how did you not get stopped when people said, no, we're not interested? Because a lot of authors would get stopped right there. And, and it, it would be like, they, you know, nobody wants it. Nobody cares. I'm giving right. up. Like, why did you keep pushing forward? I had lots of those moments. There's thousands of... <laughs> hundreds of thousands of writers with good material and for a publishing company to invest in it, it's business. I mean, they need to make money or else. They need to say, people are going to want this story. I really believe that this story, which had to be told, 
was told from such a fresh perspective that one way or the other, I was going to get it out there. And it's been reviewed in many places. And the reviews, you know, when I'm having a bad day, all I have to do is go back and reread what a perfect stranger thought about a book that I said it had to be written. You know, it's not easy being an author because very few of us make tons of money. You have to do it for the love of the art. And it is an art. (laughs) It's a creative art of the deepest kind. And you put everything you have and who you are onto the page. So it's just a matter of getting out there. Authors have to market themselves. They have to be mediagenic. They have to do things like this. Mm -hmm. I mean, how grateful I am to you (laughs) that you're sharing my story with whoever wants to tune in and listen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's part of it too. Women are great friends and Mm. the networking and the support is so critical in building your career. Never be afraid to look for a mentor Mm. or mentor somebody else who's just getting started. Uh, When I was one of the founding members of Women Riding the West, we discovered that there was a general uh, assumption that only the only writers about the West were men. Mm. It was very much um, accepted. And then we had people like Pat Limerick, who wrote uh, books about alternative versions of of the conquest of the West. She's a head of uh, the Center for the American West at University of Colorado. She intentionally signed her book presentation, Pat Limerick. So they didn't know if it was Patricia or Patrick. Mm. She was one of the forefronters that broke that glass ceiling, if you will. And uh, I just feel that it's essential to join writer organizations. The latest one that I'm part of is Colorado Independent Publishers Association. And they give advice to people that have their own publishing companies. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I do. I mean, mm-hmm. when Ginny and I started this book company, we called it Loose Cayuse Productions because we had hoped that we might take this darling logo mm. and turn it into pajamas or a backpack or you know a riding hat or something we didn't get that far that was too ambitious but I felt that I needed to know more about establishing ourselves as an independent publishing company and as a result I'm much more sympathetic to the goals and expectations of big publishing houses mm. you know they expect you to do your end of the deal. The days are gone of like, oh, I sold a book. They're going to sell it for me, right? Right. No. <laughs> you know, and if you if it doesn't move, they drop you. You don't mm-hmm. even get into the backlist. So I'm very lucky that my books are still floating around. Luckily, I can republish through the vanity presses that I've used. It's hard for me to believe that it's been 22 years since I published my first book. Looking back, it's been like a rocket ride. And I mean, I've just been very lucky that I sort of came out with a new book every few years. And one begets the other as you start understanding what your readers want. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of your questions was, what do you love most? Yeah. It's people <laughs> saying, when, when's your next book? Where, you know, I didn't want it to end. Mm-hmm. Only problem with this book is it was just too darn short. <laughs> I got that a lot on the Hidden Star book. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, oh, and then the Dinnerware book. People told me they picked it up. They couldn't stop till they got to the end, even though it was nonfiction. 
a historical documentary. It's filled with references to an era that, that is long gone, but that we loved. Mm -hmm. And it includes fashion and recipes and furniture and movies and, you know, books and postcards. And I gathered so much miscellaneous material to the book goes by the decade. And as each decade erupted, we began to see one dinnerware pattern was influenced by the work of Peter Max. You can see it very clearly. And so it's a historical record. People would write to me and say, I love this book. I read it like a novel, you know, and I found my mother's dinnerware pattern in it. Oh, that's so lovely. Like you can see in the background, <laughs> I've got plates everywhere. <laughs> I've actually called the collection in half. I've sold a lot of it, but a lot of pieces I'm very attached to. But the books and my writing and my life, Carly, are so intertwined that, and my my partnership with my husband, even though we're both semi-retired, we have a great manager. I went to Europe twice a year for 25, 30 years and discovered there's a horse culture and a cowboy culture in Italy. Mm -hmm. You know, I have readers over there too. And it's just been a wonderful wedding of, like my mother used to say, you can't put your tush in two saddles, but I feel like I, I have. <laughs> <laughs> and you're living you're living the dream and you are proof yeah. that it that writing can work and writing can mm -hmm. be something that you're constantly working at and growing and learning from and meeting mm -hmm. people and and you're living the dream yeah, now I, I have to toss this in there though so we heard what the best part was and I agree with you hearing from readers that that they enjoyed the book or giving comments so you can steer in new directions that's that's the best part what has been the most difficult part for you of your your writing career okay the agony and the ecstasy uh printing your book ordering 500 copies and finding editing mistakes mm. that you read over a thousand times <laughs> yes, that you're so embarrassed that you didn't catch it and, mm -hmm. and that that happens I mean I have a couple of books by uh the the outlaw lawyer Jerry Spence mm -hmm. and uh he went with a penguin or, you know, Knopf. I mean, a big major publisher. There are mistakes. They have, yeah. but yeah. it hurts. But to answer you truthfully, the hardest part of being a writer is the time that it takes to get the stories down, mm -hmm. to do the work. And it means saying no to a lot of distractions and invitations if you want to get the story told. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when uh, this acquisition editor said, you're going to give me that third installment of the trilogy in six weeks I said I can't do that he said you've already shown us what a great writer you are now prove it he said give it to me he says all right I'll give you seven weeks <laughs> and I did it Carly and he inspired me he's a very prestigious writer living in Canada mm -hmm. with a huge bibliography of frontier fiction when I looked him up and realized he was the acquisition editor for five star I was so honored that he loved this manuscript. So I discovered that if you do say no to everybody, no, I'm writing. I'm busy now. It works. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what can what, what we can do when we put our right. mind to something and we actually say no. It's that just that distraction does definitely yeah. gets in the way of, of building an author career for right. sure. 
Now, since, since you've had so, so much success and you have done so well, and you obviously are in love with your life, which I think is the most important thing about anything you do when, when you're working or writing or creating, you must love what you're doing. What advice would you give to someone who wants to achieve his or her dreams, like writing a book or starting a business or taking horseback riding lessons for the first time in their life? What would you say to that person? Well, I took a writer's workshop in Livingston, Montana, with some really remarkable writers. And one of the pieces of advice that I came home with was follow the heat. Whatever turns your crank, go after it. And if you think you want to write a book about winemaking in the Arizona desert, (laughs) do it. Even if somebody's already done it, they're not going to do it the way you did it. It might be a revisit of a subject that somebody left. You know, I think of the movie, uh, The Biggest Little Farm. Did you see that about saving a farm in California? It's on my watch list. I have not watched it yet. (laughs) Magnificent film. (laughs) Magnificent film. And so every subject has to have your personal point of view. Mm. The other advice I would give is to form a writer's group. And if you can't find one, call your local library, find a book club, find a, a writer's workshop, because the synergy and the feedback in the beginning is so critical. Somebody will say, man, that works. Read that again, you know, because you share your work. And writing is such a private and lonely uh, passage mm-hmm. that when you have people you can share the work with and you get instant verification, validation, it will help fuel you to write the next chapter. Definitely. Just do it. That's, that's my advice. Yes, that's wonderful advice. I love that. Follow the fire, follow what's turning you on and get support mm-hmm. from other people that you trust that will give you honest feedback, but also support you in your journey. Right. Great. You do not need permission. That was something I toyed with the first year. Gosh, I didn't major in English. Mm. I have the right to write a book. I don't know anything about writing books. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the first chapter of McGregor's Lantern was her short story that won a national award. And that's when, and my writer's group said, Corrine, that's not a short story. It's an opening chapter. Keep it going. Nice. That was it. I wrote a book in that two years. I went all the way to Scotland to research it. Mm -hmm. But suddenly I was on a trail Mm -hmm. and the trail had no end. Oh, that's fabulous. And it's still touching your life. It's You're still working. touching my life. Yeah, that is amazing. Now I have to ask you this question because I, I think your answer is going to be so awesome, but everybody answers it differently. What does creativity mean to you? Survival, <laughs> life. I coined a phrase that most of my friends laugh at, but I'm a hyper creative. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. It's not that I don't know how to relax. But I'm constantly adapting what I know in a new way. I I was telling you earlier, Mm -hmm. I went to a workshop and learned how to do a textile technique that involves photography um, that is sublimated onto a a linen sheet. The whole idea is to make the piece look old. You start with a piece of fabric. And this textile technique of layering fabrics using a heat thing to make it look old and burned and like a fragment out of an old attic or something. I fell in love with that. And in order to get through my book, Hidden Star, I created six panels that were 18 by 30 
huge wall hangings depicting the lives of the women mm -hmm. in this book that spanned 500 years. I went at it like a mad person, took me about six weeks. I bought a sewing machine. I'd never <laughs> used a sewing machine. I ended up teaching workshops on this style. You know, and today, ask me what I do. In, well, I have to stay moving because I'm in my chair so much at the keyboard. Mm -hmm. So I discovered a sport called aquatics four years ago, <laughs> which is water therapy, you know, moving mm -hmm. in the water. And last year I got certified and last fall I got hired by the local YMCA and I teach a couple of times a week. I'm a Saturday instructor. Water is so conducive to mental getting recharged. In fact, I'm doing a story for a national magazine called Aqua about horses and water therapy for horses that have pulled muscles or have weak haunches or bad backs is water therapy mm -hmm. and it's the same principles it's cardio it's respiratory it's muscular so i'm doing a piece that relates our work to the equine world so there you go again very cool lots of connected yeah. where do you find the time to be this creative i mean you are doing <laughs> a lot you publish a magazine you're writing books you do create art you create jewelry you have horses like Whoa. Anymore. Oh, you don't have horses. Okay. I thought about it very seriously. When my horse passed away, mm. I leased a horse for a summer, discovered that I didn't have the same connection at mm. all. Mm -hmm. you know, I had that horse for 24 years. Oh my gosh. And the new horse was poorly schooled, not receptive, 16 years old, had been used for reining and cutting and it was too much. So mm. I decided I will find a way to be with horses without having to to care for one. Mm -hmm. So the Pony Club, which meets, I do it one Sunday afternoon a month, mm -hmm. meets on an 18-acre property in the south end of the city that has two horses and a big burrow or donkey mm -hmm. that we just adore. And in fact, there's three horses there now. So I get my fix, if you will. Mm -hmm. Once in a while, I'll go to a dude ranch to do a story mm -hmm. or just to get into the environment. Mm -hmm. And that's about as close as I can get to horses. But I will tell you, if you were to look out the door of my office, there's a Western saddle and a dressage saddle still sitting on two saddle stands. All my, all my bridles and halters are, I can't get rid of them. I can't. Yes. And I, like, I'm so hearing what you're saying. Like I was without horses for a while there too, when I started my career when I was younger, but I kept it all. And then horses came yeah. back into my life later on. That's what I'm thinking. To take breaks. I know, Don't I hear you. tell my husband. I thought that there was one of those in the background. <laughs> I'm not done. If I can just, get, my husband's afraid I'm going to get hurt. Mm. We don't recover like we used to. I hear you there. But connection, yeah. I think connection is the biggest key to not getting hurt. A connection with yeah. the animal. I think when the connection shows up, you'll know it. I'd love to provide sanctuary to a horse yeah you know that sort of thing yeah just in case I'm keeping my tag in good condition not just in case for when it's time all right because <laughs> I hear you I feel like I could talk to you for for hours and hours and hours and days and days and days you're it's you've been such a fascinating guest and I, I love your stories but since we only have a limited amount of time I have to ask what are you curious about What's next? I, I think I heard some uh, movie or TV production. I heard another more books, obviously, lots of writing. W what are you curious about? Wow. 
you know, I'm so caught up right now in the moment with this third trilogy. I really can't see past it, except Mm -hmm. that I will say the middle grade books intrigued me enormously. And they were inspired by the plight of America's wild Mustangs. I feel like I'm being pulled in that direction, Mm -hmm. that my uh, five editions in the children's series, which all look at this business of adopting wild horses, of protecting wild horses, is where where I want to do some good. That's that's where I think I'm going. You've got my support. Would you let listeners know where they can find more information about you and your books? Sure, sure. So I have a website, a good old-fashioned kareenjoybrown.com, and there's a pull-down menu with each of my books that are available from me, as well as, of course, most of them are available on Amazon. And ones that were published years ago, you know, if you're lucky, you can get one at a great price. And so there's a little history about me. There are some, there's a wonderful panel at the Millicent Rogers Museum. And I was invited to talk about the West as Muse. Mm. It was a wonderful subject. And I was with three other brilliant writers. A poet was one of them. And we talked about how the West fuels us and inspires us. I'm really, I love that. The questions were great. So there's that to listen to. And then um, I was interviewed by a rural county school system, the Prairie and Pines, Prairie and Plains on Eastern Colorado. And their library system invited me to be uh, an interviewee. That's also posted on my website, Mm -hmm. I believe. I watched your interview on the Muse of the West. Oh, it was lovely. And that's what got me excited to have you on this show to talk about those things. The thing that was weird was the lighting. I don't know what happened. I looked like (laughs) I was in a cave. But anyway, so I, I probably haven't figured out how to maximize my exposure online, but I will say that I've been profiled by several magazines in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And those are, those links are on my site. And they've been kind of fun. I'm enjoying the fact that the public appreciates what I'm doing. And I'm hoping to get better at it. (laughs) Social media is so important. Media is important. Mm -hmm. So I want to thank you again for this time and interest and your brilliant uh, interview. Gosh. (laughs) Well, I have enjoyed this interview very, very much. And Corrine, I really appreciate the gift of your time. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Carly. I hope we'll meet again. Oh, we will. Happy trails. I love it. Until we meet again. Until we meet again. Right. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.